my biggest position, incidentally, is uh, I have Aston Martin, Apache, which is an oil company, and Greg's, which makes sausage rolls. So in case anyone's wondering whether my very... Delicious very, uh, sausage rolls. Yeah, delicious <laughs> sausage rolls. Hello and welcome to another telecoms.com podcast. It's the last podcast of January. Now, Ian... I'm glad, I'm glad you're opening on this note. Yeah. Now, Ian, you've been on dry January, haven't you? We can tell We, we can tell that you've, you've just lost all your morale. You can't be bothered to shave anymore. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, the 1st of February is a Monday. Now, I don't think you should get on it on a Monday. So are you going to break your dry January now? I think so. I mean, it's the 29th, you know, it's been four weeks. So okay. I'm, not, I'm not that bothered about bursting across the kind of 31st of, Feb- of no. January. I, when I've done dry January, which so, I didn't this year, I've always, uh, I've never made it till the 31st. Yeah, I know. well, I know I could make it to the 31st, but mm. as we're on a call and we... I could have done dry January. I don't have to prove could, anything to anyone. <laughs> so yeah, let's crack into a beer. What have you got? What's the, what's the fridge got? Well, I've got a Guinness because I made a Guinness and ale pie. I see. Because yeah, I didn't think you were a Guinness drinker. No, but I, I do quite a good pie that's got, well, you put the Guinness right. in it, obviously the alcohol burns off, but it, it creates a really nice sauce. But that's all you got to drink. And uh, and so I've, that's all I've got to drink. But I do like Guinness, so I'm not, okay. I'm not complaining. Good. I don't well, drink it very me. much, but it's tasty. It right, is tasty. Are you opening? What are you on? Yep. I've, got the, I've got the oh, star up. Has it gone everywhere? <laughs> no. Saved it. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll I'll wait and I'll wait till you've poured. You got to let it settle, though, yeah. haven't you? We'll be halfway through the pod yeah. before that's ready to drink. No, nah, it should be all right. Um. Uh. Anyway, so uh, are you ready to rock? Yeah, Cheers, mate. Look. Cheers. Oh, clink, clink, stink. And as you drink, um, I will fill the blank with the city of the month, which is drum roll. Columbus, uh, Ohio, city of Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Right. Sort of center of Rust Belt, Sophia. America. Yeah. And then followed closely by Sofia, Bulgaria. Deserves a you know, wow. good try. That's it. God knows. It's completely random, isn't it? You just talk shit for an hour and see who wants to listen. That's kind of podcasting in a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So what are we going to talk shit about this week? Assisted now by some much-needed lubrication. Yeah, I feel totally um, hammered now. I'm going to have to go and lie down. I <laughs> know. Oh, by the end of it, you're just going to be picking fights with the webcam. Um, I think we should start. We both wrote about Ericsson's quarterlies today. So we can have a little chat about Ericsson's fortunes. Um, and also earlier on in the week, they uh, had a, a product announcement, which they at least seem to think was a big deal um, around network slicing. So we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think we should chat. You After your Ericsson call today, you had a call with Rakuten. I know we've chatted about them a fair bit, but it sounds like this this call, while it was set up with loads of hacks and analysts, seemed to be set up, at least in part, to sort of admonish light reading for some of its coverage. So I think that's quite funny. Yeah. Um, and if you're getting their attention that much, then you must be doing something right. So let's have a little chat about that. Then we're going to finish. I mean, I found the, a tenuous excuse for writing about all the um, Wall Street short-selling Reddit craziness this week 
because Nokia made an announcement. And that ended up being our most read story like about 10 times more than any other story. Now, I know it's kind of cheating because I imagine most of the people who clicked on it were just people who'd Googled. I mean, I, I checked out that we're, telecoms.com was top of Google News for um, Nokia. Um, so I think people were just wondering what's going on, saw my story and clicked on it. But, you know, I'll take the clicks. It all counts. Um, and so I think we'll finish off having a slightly self-indulgent chat about that just because it's a fascinating topic and, and, a, and a very current thing. Um, okay. And just to remind you that if you're watching this on the site or on YouTube or on Facebook, you can also listen to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and loads of other podcasting platforms. Actually, before we get into Ericsson, before I forget, I just want to recap on some fun, uh, some fun sparring with my audience that I've had this week. So you guys will know, and the audience will know, I'll make no secret of my general hostility towards the European Union as, as a as a bureaucracy and a, and a political thing, as opposed to Europe, where I, I very much like going to France, Spain and Italy and wherever else, whenever I get the chance. Um, and it just cracks me up because whenever I put a little dig into a story, there's always people who rise to it. So there was a, a fairly dry story about how our government was having a look at um, laws governing access to telecoms infrastructure. So, you know, the laws when you've got a mast on some farmer's land, does the farmer get to hold you to ransom or, or are they obliged to let you go and install your new kit and all that sort of thing? And it just occurred to me that this review is happening less than a month after we officially left Europe bureaucratically. So I headed up saying, now that we're free of EU regulation, it's time to make the electronics communication code fit for purpose. And I followed up by saying, credit where it's due to the UK government for getting on with this less than a month after it shook off Europe's regulatory shackles. And I had a bunch of people going, what exactly do you mean by regulatory shackles? And tell, can you please tell us which specific thing and all this sort of stuff? I wasn't talking about a specific thing. I was just talking about us now being free to make our own rules, which to me was the fundamental point of the whole thing. Um, and so, you know, someone goes, so can you tell us what Ofcom's doing now that's so different? I'm, I just said they're doing what they want. That's the point. It's not what they're doing. It's the fact that they get to choose to do it. Some other person um, said that I'm I'm very biased against the EU, the very thought. And so I challenged him to substantiate. And some guy wrote three paragraphs on what a rubbish journalist I am and how I should just accept criticism uncrit unconditionally and, and raise my game because some guy had a pop at me on the forums. And he, he said one paragraph. He went, Scott, maybe you should try a little bit of introspection. People are coming to your article with criticisms and concerns about the quality of writing information imp and impartiality, and firing back demands for further information is not a valid response. So I just write, yes, it is. Because, uh, you know, I, I just don't... I, the thing I don't get, the reason I bring it up, other than I think it's quite amusing, is I don't get what people want. I mean, have a pop on the forums. I won't ever censor someone for having a pop at me. But just because one person thinks what I wrote was shite... I'm not under any obligation to explain myself or change my writing or, or show contrition. Uh, so that's quite funny. You, you don't have you don't have this fun because you don't have the forums open on light reading, do you, Ian? No, we, they're disabled, yeah. Uh, someone did write in um, recently, actually. I think one of our freelancers, Ken Whelan, wrote a really good story, actually, about health concerns to do with 5G. 
apparently some Edinburgh University professor had come out and said that yes, I saw that. Sort of, not, nothing to do with coronavirus. It was a very, really well-researched piece by Ken, actually. He'd gone to the trouble of actually talking to a few people. Um, she often don't have time to do that much of these days, but but he'd uh, been quite thorough and someone wrote in and said, you know, obviously someone who knew what they were talking about, complaining they couldn't comment on the on the website. Why is it closed? But um, yeah, we've got problems with spam basically that need resolving before it can be opened. And it's been a yes. long running, a long running thing. But um, yeah, well, hopefully it's unfortunate hopefully we'll because it just looks like there's a lot of uncommented on stories and it's, it's yeah, it looks like no one reads your stuff. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which we and know not to be the case. And it's just, uh, you can't do it on any of them basically. So no. Well, but um, then again, as we're going to come to in a bit, some people, while they can't comment on your story, will host entire press conferences in order to comment on your yeah, story. Yeah, well, so. maybe, maybe, maybe that's a bit flattery, but yeah, I think they were. They were there. There was clearly I'm, there was clearly I'm some going with it. motivation from something Mike wrote. Uh, about, right. Yeah, okay. Well, that's I'll, that, I'll go so. with that. You know, yeah. journalist embellishes story to make it seem like a bigger deal. Shock. It's the other thing people don't understand. Yeah, sometimes you get accused of writing clickbait headlines. No, it's just headlines. Of course, we slightly sensationalise, but as long as the body copy can support the headline, that's just normal yeah. journalistic practice. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. what can you do? Um, so, Ericsson. All right, I've banged on for a bit. So, why don't I hand the ball to you? Why don't you give? Why don't you tell us what the what you found out about Ericsson today? Yeah. Well, they've uh, they've reported on their full year results, um, and they're 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 really good, actually. I mean. Um, I don't think it's a big surprise, you know, their recovery has been underway for some time now. Um, you know, had a good first nine months of last year, despite all the difficulties with the pandemic and everything. And, you know, they've been going on about growing market share in certain regions at other companies' expense. So that seemed to continue in the fourth quarter. Uh, and lo and behold, they're, they're kind of way ahead of the targets they set. So, I mean, yeah, that's really margin. encouraging. Yeah, yeah, they, they were talking about 12%, which seems... I think they might even be talking about ten percent at one stage. Uh, actually, th- this year, and they're up to so yeah, they're up to twelve percent, which was what they wanted to get to as a minimum by twenty twenty two. So they're sort of two years ahead of that. And um, you know, even that that sort of ten percent margin target seemed quite optimistic. I think when Ecom took over in early twenty seventeen. Um, now it's come at a huge cost. You know, you look back to their capital markets day last year when they were pretty frank about how many staff they laid off twenty five thousand. Yeah. Twenty five k, twenty five thousand. Now I think they've they because they've hired other people. The actual net reduction is not that big, but they've they've basically had right. to let twenty five thousand people go, uh, which is huge. Mm. Uh, and a lot of that's divestment activity. You know, they've sold some under, underperforming units. You know, they're much more focused now on network, um, and and that's that business is really competitive. I mean, credit to them. They're they're up there. They're you know there was question marks i think over them in the 4g era whether they really had it anymore and you, you saw huawei coming along and overtaking them to be the kind of big equipment supplier in europe and you know they've got their mojo back i think really in that that market um you know sales are up and yeah it all looks good but i mean one of the things i took away from it was because you always you always want to sort of draw out the challenges i guess and the questions as a journalist yeah. was this this big sort of issue about China and they they did, they did it themselves really. They invited that because they they're right in the you know introduction where Ecom has his you know CEO Ecom has his um, little sort of uh, speech not speech but his, his write up his take on yeah. on how they've done. 
he immediately sort of drew attention to this geopolitical situation that's been going on. And there's been quite a lot of coverage recently, even. I think The Economist wrote about it in the edition that's just out, this um, sort of Sweden-China spat that's uh, developed where the Swedish government has basically told operators that one 5G spectrum, they can't use Huawei to build the networks. And it was a challenge by Huawei, but it's, you know, it's basically worked out that, you know, companies have now got Spectrum and they're already landing, you know, signing agreements with Nokia and Ericsson. Um, and it's all a bit, it's all a bit awkward for Ericsson because it's got this fairly significant business in China that's that's been, you know, responsible for much of the growth they've seen. I think if you look at a breakdown of the results, that's where, you know, that's the yeah. double digit growth is all come in China. Oh, it's 30 uh, odd percent from Northeast Asia. Exactly. And that's the real worry to for them. deflect a little happens. bit by going, there's, there's been a bit from Japan. And you know, we, yeah. we both, we both, you were just before me. We both chatted to Frederick Yedling, the head of their networks division, effectively the number two in the company, isn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, and yeah, I was going. So, can you give us a split between China and Japan? They wouldn't. Um, well, they, they do have that. though. you can find that Scott in the in the report. They have a percentage. Oh, really? How come so he wouldn't tell they, me it then? Weird, because they've got. I mean, they haven't got a breakdown of network sales, but overall sales, which would include digital and managed services okay. as well, they have a percentage for for their biggest markets. So China was. It doesn't give the number, but it says nine percent of total revenues. So you can work right. it out. It's eighteen point six billion Swedish krona, which is two point two billion dollars. Um, you so it's, and it, that's up. That's grown by seventeen percent. Does it break out Japan? No, well, I don't think Japan, it only breaks out the top five right. markets. And I don't Maybe that's Japan's why he wouldn't, because I was so. sort of kind of explicit. I was just asking yeah. for some kind of split because, you know, they're going Northeast, Northeast Asia, which normally means China. And then they made a point of going, Japan's done all right. And I, I felt that was them going, trying to sort of damp down how reliant on China they've been. It, it has done well. I mean, they've done, you know, it's, I think, I think Japan and South Korea have been really strong markets for them as well last year. So it's not all China, but you know, it's a massive market. This is the thing, 17% in a market that's this year made 2.2 billion is a lot of growth. And, yeah. you know, and the, the, the interesting thing is their share of that market is still pretty small. I mean, they keep going on about how they've grown their position in 5G. It's much bigger than it was in. But it's, it's, it's tiny. It's still less than 12% of the market that they've got. And, and the rest of it's Huawei and ZTE, basically. But in a market where the, the operators have built Seven hundred reports are saying yeah. seven hundred thousand five G base stations last year. It's it's ridiculous. It's a number that's like not. Yeah. You can't compare it with anywhere any other country in the world, really. Not that, even the US. No, corporate. it's just no. Certainly not the US. Scale. They're they're, um, they're 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 no, they're nowhere near on sort of densification. I mean, all right, there are far fewer people in the US than there are in China. That's one way of looking at it. But you know, if you look at it in sort of geographical area, then China's just sort of. Pet, peppered with um, yeah. base stations, basically, and it's really good business for yeah, so Ericsson. So it doesn't that. want to lose this. If it loses this, it's it's problematic. Um, exactly, to- and, and and Ekholm actually. So I got a little comment out of Yedling, and yeah. then I was looking at your piece because I had for some reason hadn't read all of. I think I just read the bit. Ekholm has quite a long prepared statement. It's like about ten paragraphs, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and I just got to the bit I wanted and didn't read the rest. But I saw from your piece that he'd made a comment on the China thing. So I got, I got Yedling to say there may it may cause that. So just to recap, by the way, before we skip over it, um, well, you did just touch on it, but the the fact that Sweden banned Chinese vendors has obviously got Ericsson shitting itself about um, China uh, returning the favour. And banning Swedish vendors, i.e., Ericsson, in China, yeah. which in a tit for tat way 
you know, you couldn't really blame her for doing it. They're like, okay, two can play that game, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but uh, they haven't yet. And so you and I obviously asked about it. And, yeah, Yedling said they may cause some repercussions. And Netcom, in his prepared statement, actually addressed that head on and said, yeah, it might might all go yeah. big tongue. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's partly, I mean, there's other there's other things kind of going on in China. I think it's worth pointing out. There's this sort of licensing dispute that's been boiling now for uh, a couple of years. I think it was 2019. This all this all kicked off where they've they've sort of been accused of patent abuses in that market, which you know is a further pressure point for them because we've seen with right. this dispute they've got going on with Samsung that that can you know that can that can come at a cost. I mean, they've already said this is going to wipe. About what is it? Up to 1.5 billion Swedish kroner off um, operating income for the next few quarters, and it's very uncertain right. when it might get resolved. So it's not. I think it's just the sales side of it. There's kind of there's other things that could happen. There's there's a kind of supply issue. You know, one of the one of the concerns that was brought out in the earnings call was standards fragmentation, which we talk about a lot. Yeah, industry bifurcation and you know later 5G standards and 6G perhaps being yeah, regionalized. It's very interesting him addressing that head on i mean there obviously there is a concern it could happen however small it might be and what did he um, say? it's really not in a i got his quote written down somewhere i've got my story open but he he said um i mean it's it's, it's sort of what you what you'd expect but yeah he said yeah from an industry point of view it is critical we hold together the global standard because it has allowed the world to connect 8 billion subscribers yeah you know, i mean they, they they've done very very well that the big equipment makers out of economies of scale and, and all this sort of stuff and it really works no to and they're right and actually model and yeah it occurs to me that you know like when i'm chatting to um frederick yedling he you know when you compare the comments you got from him with at Combs comments they're almost identical yeah so yeah, they yeah. basically they've got their talking points and they're they're really they're really disciplined with their messaging and yeah. while it's while it's great to speak to him I even said to him I don't know if you ever listened to the podcast and he sort of seemed to make a noise that indicated he was at least aware of it um I'm sure so, some, uh, some people do yeah so this isn't a dig Frederick if you're listening to this one but uh the message discipline's so tight that you almost wonder why they bother to do individual interviews when yeah. they're just going to more or less echo what has already been said. Um, but there we go. Uh, the, the, well, it's the, still I mean, great the, to the, chat to him. It is. I, I, I think the, you know one of the interesting things is that because analysts will be looking at this obviously and wondering what a China ban would mean if it happened for targets, you know, and and the fact that they've had this. Um, really good year and the, and the margins are really healthy and they've got lots of cash in their books. You know, one of the messages that came out today on the call and in the report was they're, in, you know, they've kind of basically completed their turnaround. You know, the last few years they've been trying to get the business back into shape and, and not have to worry about layoffs and, you know, areas that are not that competitive. Okay, that's arguably still going on in digital to some extent and maybe managed services, but they're much smaller units anyway. And they can start to think about growth, you know, and investment and, and areas to go into. And enterprise is a big part of that. So if, if China all of a sudden becomes an issue and, and they lose access to that market, it would, it, you, you kind of sense it could be a bit of a, bit of a setback for them strategically Just a bit. You know, in terms of what they can achieve. I think it'd be huge. And, and the sort of things they want to do. And I think, you know, you can look at it on the other hand, you know, th th there's a lot they can pick up um, at the expense of Chinese equipment vendors in, in other parts of the world. You know, they've done, they acknowledge today, I think, for the first time, they've always downplayed this, um, 
you know, when they talk about taking market share, it's always non-Chinese rivals, which is basically a reference to Nokia. But it was interesting today in the earnings call that they acknowledged for the first time that they've they've basically won work off Huawei. Um, and they, I mean, they couldn't really avoid saying that. Is that Europe? What's happened? Yeah, it's all going to be in Europe because obviously they're not they're not present in the US anyway, and they're, they're, they're mm. certainly not winning work at Huawei's expense in China. African markets, I think, you know, it's I don't know, it's harder to say, isn't it? Maybe in, maybe sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. But but Europe, clearly, there are very clear examples that both of us have written about. You know, we just talked about Sweden. That's one where net net for mobility, this joint venture between Telenor and and, and Tele2, I think, is um, you know is switched immediately from Huawei to Ericsson and Nokia. We've got the swap outs that are going on in the UK, you know, with BT and and three, and I, and I think there are other instances as well that I can't remember off the top of my head. But some Scandinavian ones. There's how I'm much sure. of um, so, you're you're much better at knowing this stuff than I am. How much of Deutsche Telekom Germany's stuff is still Huawei? Well, that's I mean, this is the big one, I suppose, is Germany because you know what I wonder is 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 there enough Huawei for them to eat into, if you like, in Europe to really make up for that China loss? And I'm not sure there is because it's such a big market, you know, mm. because it's. You know, it's 10 or 12%, 70,000 base stations, but maybe that many will get built again this year. You know, there are not that many other countries where you're, you're anywhere near that level, I don't think, per operator. And um, and the one that's really quite sizable, obviously, in, in you know, if you look at European markets, where a lot of them are tiny little markets, you know, Sweden's not a very big country, let's be yeah. honest, from Huawei's perspective. It's, it's more the principle rather than the actual loss of business. Germany is is big, obviously. It's a big, big country. You know, the Telefonica Deutschland last week was saying they've got about 30,000 sites. I think Deutsche Telekom's pushing towards, you know, substantially more than that, towards a sort of 40,000 level, I think, is sort of later ambitions when they, as they roll out 5G. So these these are big big operators in, in a very, you know, large geographical market, which is very urbanised. And Huawei's really, you know, it's, it's really dug in in that market. It's got a massive role. It's you know, it's mo- it's uh, it's still most of the DT network. I think. I think it's probably yeah. about two thirds of Deutsche Telekom's networks, with the other third served by Ericsson. Ericsson. So, um, so there is an opportunity, but I just I don't. You know, at the moment the Germans have been quite resistant to that um, that decision. The one that you know we've seen taken in the UK yeah, and the one on the Sweden's fence. made. They're they're very much sitting on the fence, they're not, and they're the, it's the same situation as Sweden basically, except the Ger- the Swedes have just sort of basically gone ahead and and said that. You know, let's not worry too much about Ericsson. We're we're more bothered about getting Huawei out. Whereas the Germans have gone, hang on, hang on a minute. You know, if we if we take a decision like that, then it really puts a lot of German industry at risk because they ship so much to to China, basically yeah, well, cars, the, the, machine tools, there's exactly. all sorts of yeah. That's the one that so, one immediately thinks of is beamers going to China. Yeah, and 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 I think also there'd be more disruption. I mean, everybody talks about the disruption that gets caused when you have a swap out and how difficult it is to do. And I think in the UK, there was perhaps, you know, one or two operators maybe, maybe exaggerating how bad it would be, you know, quite early on in the 5G rollout. Um, yeah, you know, they, were, they were making how much the most equipment, of it, Yeah. They? And I think that with Deutsche Telekom, I do think that there's there's going to be, you know, if it had to do that, it would be much worse for Deutsche Telekom than it would be for any of the UK operators, simply because they've moved so quickly. It's almost like they've done this to preempt things, if you like, you know, so they can say, Oh, if we had to take equipment out now, it would be massively costly, and it would slow down the rollout of five G services. And it would, you know, they've got this five uh, G network. They now say, I think is, I think it's more than fifty percent of the German population it covers. I think at the end of last year was the target, and it's mainly it's mainly Huawei, you know, because Ericsson, I think, as far as I'm aware, most of Ericsson's work so far has been 
swapping out Nokia, basically. They came in instead of Nokia a few years ago, and they've really been sort of focused on upgrading the 4G systems to be sort of Ericsson ones. So I don't think Ericsson's been heavily involved in Deutsche Telekom's 5G rollout. See, it's a lot of equipment that would have to go if, if that happened yeah. in, in, in Deutsche Telekom. And, and yeah, it'd be very disruptive, I think, for them. The um, back to One point you made about um, how Ericsson's got some uh, outstanding sort of litigation or something going on in China. The, yeah. the real danger, I think, these days of that sort of thing isn't just the litigation itself, but the thin end of the wedge it represents for politicians and regulators and and opportunistic lawyers to to then go, well, seeing as they did that, we should apply these other sanctions to them. I mean, this is a large part of what's been done to Huawei, especially in the US. It's like, right, we we got we caught we reckon we caught Huawei doing this one thing, therefore ban them from everything because they're dodgy. Um and that would be if I was Boyer at home, that would be the thing I'd be most worried about is if they get done for anything in China, then that gives the state all the pretext it needs to to sort of ramp up the punitive measures. Yeah. If it was so inclined. Uh, so yes, I mean, it's it's interesting in China. You know, if you look through the earnings report, there's there's quite a lot of reference to what's going on in that market. And I, I some things that escape my notice. I mean, I think you might have been aware of them, Scott. You've probably written about some of this, but the I'd miss actually that there's that there's um, new regulations that have gone into effect um, this month. I think even that, that would allow authorities in China to to reject or limit foreign investments, kind of like the entity list stuff that the US has done. Um, yeah, I was vaguely aware of that. They've been they've been tiptoeing around that for a little while. I yeah, it's almost the, like, but it's almost sort of like laying laying the groundwork for moves they could make against Ericsson, which is why you you, you sense yeah. that they. Because I, I did ask him, have you been told? Any, I asked um, Frederick, have you been told anything specifically by the Chinese government? And um, he did, you know, he he wouldn't comment on that. I mean, no, you know, said said no basically. It wasn't on the script. Uh, yeah, but you know, I didn't expect really to get a lot a lot out of him on, on something like that. But you just sort no, of sense that you've got to ask, haven't you? Yeah, I mean you can see you can see just from the lobbying efforts that have been made by Huawei and, and, and also the, the sort of how upset the Chinese government is about what Sweden's doing and then and then introducing these kinds of rules and regulations where where things are heading. So um yeah. you know, they're not they're not stupid. They can see what the risks so it's quite, might be. I think it's I think it's quite delicate because I think China could be quite vindictive to U.S. companies, although you know this is this is this is the nature of the interdependence of everything. I read a story; I think it was just an unsourced or anonymously sourced rumor about Apple increasingly moving its manufacture to sort of India and Vietnam and all that sort of thing. And that's the problem. China could just try and get cute and and do something vindictive to Apple. But yeah. it's it's but it's reliant on a lot of Apple money for the manufacture, so it's not really as simple as that. And then regarding doing something vindictive to Ericsson in order to punish Sweden, well, then it brings the whole EU into it. The EU has to say has to adopt a position on that, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. So you know, this is this is what we kind of count on now that we're in this post-Trump era, where things all sort of revert to a more behind-the-scenes classically diplomatic jostling for position rather than the, the overtly confrontational approach of Trump. We've, we've got, you know, the big cunning plan with China was always supposed to be, everyone knew they're a bit dodgy on human rights. Everyone knew they were undemocratic. Everyone knew that there were some 
sort of cultural differences, but they thought, look, if you know, this is the pro-globalization argument, appropriately enough in, in the week of Davos and, and the WEF and the Great Reset and all that bullshit. Um, pro-globalization argument is, you know, if we're all so interdependent, this is also the EU argument, if we're all so interdependent, we're never going to fight each other because it's too costly to do it. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you know, the e argument that we're not going to fight each other as long as we're together seems to have been borne out because as soon as we've left, as soon as we've left, they start to give us lip over vaccines and AstraZeneca and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder well, what my uh, my critics in the forums would make of that, but there we go. Of course, the, the downside is you end up having to deal with some fairly dubious regimes, don't you? Well, that's it, isn't it? And, and, and this works both ways. Yeah, and this is a problem. And then, and then all of a sudden, those regimes of... Yeah, they're, they're not only doing things to their own people, which has been reported about for a while with, with the sort of stuff that's going on with the Uyghur Muslims in, in China, but yeah. all of a sudden being quite aggressive internationally, in, you know, in terms of, yeah. you know, conflict with India and, you know, saber rattling in the South yeah. China Sea and all this. And that's definitely got a lot worse over the last couple of years, which is when why... When you get some pragmatic leaders or regimes where they'll go, okay... You want you want everyone to play nice and be part of some big global community. We'll be part of it, but we're going to work out a way of tipping the balance in our favour and taking the piss. It just happens. I'm sure everyone does it. Yeah. Listen, um, we've laboured that a fair bit, and we've got other stuff to chat about. Well, we're, we're, we've, so, got we've got yeah, a segue. Yeah, we've got a segue. That's what I was just going to bring up. So the other thing I I asked uh, Frederick about, and I think you mentioned was was open round because basically. My view was, okay, you've had a great quarter. I'm not going to spend the brief time you've given to me congratulating you on having a great quarter. I'm going to ask you about some of the things that could that could fuck things up for you in the future. Yeah. One of them was China. Another one was Open RAN, which, you know, obviously, as we've spoken about at great length on this, um, is a strategic threat to Ericsson because it threatens to bring other players into the RAN segment, which is where they get most of their cash. Um, I asked him about that. I'm just looking at my notes here on my story. I mean, he gave me the same sort of thing as you saw in Boy Is One. How? Um, oh no, 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 that was different. Sorry. Um, I, I think the most interesting point he made, other than reiterating the view that they think an integrated round is still better, which it is currently, um, is he said, I think what's more important is that 5G gets deployed at all, and he's particularly worried about European competitiveness on that one. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, I don't if you've got any comment on that. But then the obvious segue is is that your your call with with Rakuten concerned Open Run as well. So feel free to yeah. I mean, respond I, he said to that this, and then move it on. Well, I thought I mean I asked him the same question and pretty much got the same answer and, and he elaborated a bit. But um, I, I did ask him what he th- what this is Frederick Yedling I'm talking about here. But I did ask yeah. him what um, he thought of this uh, little EU sort of get together by four of the big operators, you know, urging their governments to, okay. yeah. to back open RAN. And, and, and the message was clearly that, and I, I've noticed that uh, Ericsson have felt this way anyway, because uh, some of the top people at Ericsson have been retweeting something I wrote this week, suggesting, which is quite critical of the, of the whole thing, suggesting that um, it would be a better use of public sector funding, perhaps, if you are going to use public sector funding, to, to look at broader initiatives, really, and not be technology-specific. Yeah. Um, so he... He, specifically, you know, he came out and said that we don't believe in sort of technology neutral support for stuff and and it would be better for you know for Europe to get behind 5G and not necessarily funding, I don't think he was saying. You know, that Ericsson is obviously very frustrated. It could I think, be regulation. But, and- regula- I mean, that's the big thing. I think a lot of the spectrum. stuff, that, we talk about this a lot on the, all the time on Spectrum. You know, I think governments still, throughout the whole of the pandemic, still seem to think that 
Spectrum's a good opportunity to raise a buck or two, and it's far exactly. better to. And 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 it is. Look, I, you know, operators are very well off compared to a lot of other companies at the moment. They've done much better than you know than hoteliers and and, and airlines and all this sort of stuff. So maybe they seem like a, a good target for you know for 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 raising some cash. But then again, on the other hand. Um, if you don't move ahead with these spectrum auctions, then your 5G ro- launch and rollout is going to be years behind everybody else. And, yeah. and then you miss out on a huge number of opportunities. So I'm very sympathetic towards this argument. I think it'd be far better to just yeah, and it's short term, maybe it's, try I mean, and tax it in future. I don't know. But but try and get this spectrum into their hands so they can do something yeah, with well, it. Just, just encourage infrastructure full stop. Because even if you just look at it from a tax revenue point of view, if yeah. the country's doing better, you're getting more goddamn but, tax revenue. But to me, that's a far more sensible way that the EU or any national government could support operators and the sector rather than by chipping a bit of money into Open RAN, which, yes. to be quite honest with you, is a very specific thing and is something that the operators themselves could fund if they really wanted it and they really believed yeah. in it. As, as and we talked said, about, so we went on about this last week. So, yeah, no so point your point is that Ericsson's but, kind of echoing that. And, and they basically went, yeah. So they basically sort of agree with me, but um, I'm I'm quite sympathetic towards their line there, really. And, I, and I'm not. That's not because I'm opposed to open RAN per se. I just don't think it's something that um, should be supported in the way that Orange Deutsche Telekom, yeah. Vodafone, and Telefonica seem to think it should. You know, you, you want to support it, guys. Get your own venture capital firms to put some money into open RAN companies. You know, Orange oh, yeah. has just got, got a 350 million euro fund that just started yeah. off. Why can't that do something? Do you know what I mean? The, the taxpayer's got enough shit to worry exactly, about right now. Exactly. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. So, and then immediately after that, when you, uh, and thank you for being on time because you were immediately before me with Frederick and, and my call started on time. <laughs> so that's all good. And I don't think he you, was on a but, call before us. I think he was doing something else because cause he, wasn't no, with, no, but, he wasn't with their press people. So, right. So, um, he, was, he was late. Well, maybe he was a yours. bit late on mine, but he was only like no, two I, minutes I, late. I had, I had Yana on mine. Um, yeah. Uh, but then the other incentive you had to be punctual was that you were having a call with Rakuten. Rakuten, after, so yeah. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, the Rakuten, we talk about a lot there. Uh, so there's the segue with Open RAM because they're the big sort of cheerleader for Open RAM. They're the, they're the company that's, um, you know, deploying it nationwide in their national market of Japan. And even like, even licensing out their, their best practice. Even licensing it out. Operates. You know, they, they basically control Altiostar, which is one of the big uh, software vendors in, in the Open RAM industry. They're the, the majority owner in that now. Uh, so they're kind of a vendor as well, in a way. Um, so they've got a lot at stake. You know, they want to they want to see Open Round be a big success, and they were obviously a bit miffed about something. I mean, this isn't even reading between the lines. Just the way the round table discussion that I had went. They're obviously a bit miffed about something that Mike wrote, uh, Mike Dana, my colleague in the US, where he picked up on some analyst reports that were coming out about deteriorating network quality in you right. know on the records and network now this has been one of the concerns you know this gets back to the comments we we heard from Ekholm and frederick yedling and all, all the naysayers about open man who go yeah it's all very well but it just doesn't measure up you know it's not capable yeah. of, of serving urban areas and demanding consumers and that's a big deal in a market like japan which is very urbanized obviously one of the most advanced mobile markets in the world you know if it's not going to work there then you know, it's not going to work anywhere, is it? Basically, so um, you know, he 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 basically got Tarek Amin, who's the CTO of Rakuten Mobile, the kind of telecom bit, got on the call and immediately took issue with this and said, "Well, you know, <laughs> he, they're not." Did he? Exp- he didn't explicitly flag up light reading. He didn't flag up light reading, but he said, "I've been yeah. reading some of the reports," and he sort yeah. of said, "You know, that's I, I clear. Can, that's what he was. That's clear what he said." And you know, and he, you know, his his gripe was that. Um, 
the you know he's he's he was basically i mean the, the thing is it'd be nice if he'd sort of addressed this head-on i think months ago perhaps rather than allowing speculation to um you know to kind of continue about uh why why network performance might be degrading because it's the first time i've certainly ever heard it said and I've, I've been on most of their round tables but he said the real problem is not anything to do with open round or the technology they're using it's the fact that they've got this spectrum in the 1.7 gigahertz band that they're using for 4g and for mm-hmm. one for one thing they've only got about a fifth as much spectrum as any of their rivals so they're very very constrained and the other issue, apparently, is that even with what they've been allocated, they can't use most of it at the moment because it's still being used by the Japanese military. So right. they're working at the moment to try and get the military off. I didn't know there was such a thing. Ministry of Defence. Ministry of Defence. Right, they're, so, they're allowed to have they're allowed to have um, guns again, are they? Well, this is in Japan. I mean, you know, it's well, because Japan and Germany after the Second between, World War were, were allowed to have any armed forces, were they? Yeah, well, it's well, it's it's basically used by the Ministry of Defence anyway for communications, right, okay. and it's um, keeping an eye um, on China and, or whatever. And, and what it means is that the tw- the twenty megahertz they've got, they've only actually got about five megahertz across a huge chunk of Japan, like a lot of the country, and and clearly that's going to affect network performance. So this, this what what Open Signal, which is one of the analysts that. Um, you know, Mike had sort of had, had reported on what they were saying was that when they looked at network performance in May, and then compared it again in September, Rakuten's you know the, the megabits per second download speed that you get had gone mm. down as as users were joining the network, which is what happens. You know, if you get more users yeah. in a cell site and you've got spectrum constraints, then then performance is going to go down. And um, you know, and, and it's noticeable as well that if you look at the other Japanese operators, they're much, much better on that particular measure. They, they all have much faster networks on download speeds and don't seem to have had this deterioration issue. So so this, that was, this was kind of the purpose of the call, really, was to try and address some of the concern about open RAM because, you know, obviously if, they've, if, if this this argument that it is not, you know, that it's not ready for prime time and that it's only something you can really use in rural areas and, um, you know, and... and we have to wait several years before it reaches maturity and, you know, and, and parity, I guess, with traditional is, you know, it's not a message that Rackerton's particularly keen no. on, on. So on how hearing. well do you think he addressed that concern? Well, he did address it well and he's a really, he's a really competent, capable yeah. guy, obviously. He's, he's, he's very he's smart. Guru, and I'm, I'm always impressed by him. Um, I mean, two things I would say is first, as I say, I just think, I just think maybe they should have called it out sooner. I think when they were deploying, they should perhaps have said, you know, by the way, we've got some spectrum constraints and uh, it's going to be a while before this is resolved. Now, what he's saying at the moment is it's going to take the rest of this year before they've fully cleared that and they're on this full to the 20 megahertz. So that's the, fir- the first thing I would say is that perhaps they should just have, you know, highlighted this immediately. And then when these analysts go off and, and make their reports, they can take that into account, yeah? Because it seemed yeah. like people are riding from a position where they didn't really know about this. Um, it seemed to be news to people. Uh, the other thing I would say is, does the consumer really care? You know, this is the issue. I mean, all right, it's, yes. may, maybe if it isn't open RAN's fault. Shit, shit. Uh, maybe it isn't open RAN's fault. We, you know, I still don't think this is going to put to to sleep all the all the kind of conjecture about open RAN. A lot of operators will still say to you that it's not as good at the moment. So, and just because Rakuten is is insisting, I don't think he's going to he's going to sway the whole industry. Um, and you know, they obviously need they obviously need a network that's performing really well to be able to fully convince people. So it's not going to help them anyway. You know, yeah. it's it's 
it, it doesn't prove, does it, that open ran is um, you know is is kind of up to scratch. It, it, it just means there might be yeah. another problem. And there. I think um, I think there's an interesting moral there in terms of messaging, and and this is relevant to the final segment as well. It, in this case, sort of getting ahead of the message. So we're in a world now where message, public messaging is quite complicated. It used to be quite straightforward. There'd be a few channels to the public, i.e. the media, uh, and you'd issue press releases and you'd actually have proactive PR operations where where people would like chat to us and, and take us out for lunch and explain shit at length. Um, but now most companies seem more worried about um, sort of social media and that sort of thing, Yeah, which is which is a lot harder to control. But what they can do is just be a bit more proactive just in whatever messaging they do to the traditional media. So, for example, OpenSignal had had a, and for that matter, Mike at Light Reading, had had a more comprehensive briefing on the on the precise factors affecting Rakuten's network performance, including Spectrum. Then that would, I presume, would have at least... Um, been included as some nuance in in the reporting of the of the shitty numbers that Open Signal were getting for them. So I think they exactly. just failed to get ahead of the game. Yeah, they, they they failed to get ahead of the game, and maybe they just thought it wasn't. I mean, the trouble the trouble for, you know if we disregard all the stuff about Open RAN, the problem is that that you know this isn't all about Open RAN. They're trying to build a position in the Japanese market. They're trying to get customers on board. They're not just trying to advertise Open RAN. And a customer won't care about open round. They just care about good network performance. So whether it's Spectrum or whether it's the technology, it's still an issue for them, I think. It's still a bit of a problem that they've got this um, constraint that isn't going to be fully resolved until the end of the year. I mean, the the good news is, and this is where perhaps we will be able to make a proper assessment about the capabilities of open round and Tarakamin will finally be proved right that all these naysayers are completely wrong and they're all overly negative is that on 5G, apparently they've got loads of spectrum. It's only a 4G constraint. They've got loads and loads they can use. They're, they're very well off in, in terms okay. of 5G frequencies. So Probably mid-band. You know, that's, like that's a younger a service. It was, it was launched more recently. Uh, I think they've, yes, I think they've got, you know, they've got the, the, some of the mid-band stuff, but I think they've also got some sort of millimeter wave spectrum resources they can use. So it, it really is quite For what quite good that is. Well, yeah, I know it's not um, it's not something you're going to deploy across a macro network, and they said that themselves. Credit to them, but but it, but but I think across the, the various bands that you would think of using for for five G, they're quite well off. So okay. it's not an excuse they can use. Basically, this well, this exactly. one about spectrum, so and, if, and therefore, so if they're still shite, then if it's still go, yeah, spent, then yeah, go, yeah. But it was a really dodgy day, and and I've had a bit of a bug, and uh, <laughs> and look, just get off my fucking back. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Um, um, I mean, I, I, in terms of their comms with the press, I mean, in fairness to them, I do think it's look, they're, they're in Japan for a start, so they're not somebody I expect to be taking me out for drinks and, and dinners anyway. Even if we were able to do that in the UK at the moment, very much, and well, I, they are imagine, pretty they, they are pretty being... proactive. I think I have to say on the no, fair enough, fair enough. That, that so was they're, more they're, they're much of... much better, I think, than most other operators at the moment. I would yeah. say, to be honest. Okay. Um, credit where it's due. Yeah, that's and, more and it's nice that general... they got on top of this quite quickly. That's the other thing. You know, they saw the reports well, yes. going out and responded pretty fast to it. That's good, and, but but know. even better than that would be to have not had to have a sudden flap, yeah, and a panic. I mean, I think did you tell me that that you know through the channels it would be made clear to you that it would be 
particularly it, appreciated if you were it, on the call. It, it, it um, did, yes. I, I, yeah, we, so that's firefighting. We ideally, um, yeah, ideally you want to not be firefighting. And this is part of a general gripe I've got about corporate spend on marketing and PR. Because I can completely imagine that they've lost control of the story because they've got hardly any people internally whose job it is day-to-day to stay on top of these things. I mean, yeah. in-house, in-house PR departments are just a fraction of the size of what they were even a decade ago, aren't they? They are, yeah. Um, yeah. And the thing about having an in-house PR person is it's their job, even if they're not very good, it's their job to just obsess about this stuff the whole time. You can't expect Tarek, I mean, to be obsessing about this. He's too busy being elbows deep in circuit boards and, and thinking about cleverness. And, and he's um, and he's far more um, accessible, actually, as a CTO, and, and probably the most sought after CTO in the industry. I think at the moment, mm. you know, he's extremely high profile. I mean, I saw the Telegraph's even writing about Rakuten at the moment quite recently. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so all they need to do is drop so he, a, drop yeah. a bit of cash on some in-house PR. Yeah. And then and then they don't have to suddenly get this bloke away from his from his sort of dungeon lab. Yeah, uh, I mean, so maybe they just need like more that. PR people. They've got a few who are very good, but maybe they, yeah. maybe they just need more. No, more believe me, more I, I mean, I don't have any um, contact with them PR-wise, so it's certainly not yeah. a dig at their PR specifically. Yeah, no, um, they're, they're, they're impressive on all that on on that front, and and it was good that they got they, you know, they got this call together quite fast. Yeah. I mean, I should say that it came off the back. It wasn't, um, you know, this is why I don't want to I don't want to over-egg this sort of oh it was a response to something like reading rope kind of thing because they, they did you. have an announcement to, they did have an announcement today and they usually do a round table after they've had those announcements they usually do a technology round table so what they announced was and I'm, I'm unfamiliar with all the details at the moment because a freelancer covered this and, and somebody else edited it but um they basically overhauled some of their tariffs um, okay and 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 cut prices even more than they already, you know, they, they already had these knockdown rates, which I think were about 50% as much as other Japanese operators were charging. Mm. They've now, they're, they're now, I think there's there's services you can get if you're only using a few megabytes a month or, gig, you know, a couple of gigabytes a month, you, you're paying almost well, nothing. Now, well, maybe there's a bit of desperation here, though, I think. Yeah, I because was going to say, maybe that's acknowledgement of their network being a bit shy. You know, yeah, they've not had, you know... This, this is where there are question marks about what they did, what they're trying to do. Is that um, you know they came on the scene with these bold plans to build a fourth network, and you know Hired Tara Kamini had previously been at Geo in India, which has been a massive success story. It's gone from being a new entrant to the biggest operator in that market with millions and millions of customers. And I think there was a, a sort of expectation that maybe they could pull off the same thing in Japan. Pull off, do a Geo. Totally different circumstances, and then a lot yes. of analysts were skeptical, saying, "Hang on, people aren't as price sensitive." It's tough because you have, it's a very advanced market. You know, you're using unproven technologies. And some of these questions haven't, they've still, you know, despite today, despite this sort of spectrum, you know, blame it, blaming the spectrum and not the network for what's going on, they still really haven't, I don't think, addressed that that issue. And, and, and the subscriber numbers are not that encouraging. This is the problem. They're still on about, I think it's 2.2 million they're on customer numbers at the moment, about 10 months after launching, which is, you know, it's, they would have they would have hoped for more than that. I mean, they'll play that down and say, "Yeah, okay, you know, it's slow going, and we never expected it to be the kind of big bang that we had that, that Geo had in in India." But you can tell they they want they would have wanted to have done better than that, I think. Um, and it's mm. yeah, it's just it's just interesting that they've not you know that they haven't really proven the the case yet. I don't think. And I think the other yeah. the other challenge they've got, and I did ask about this on the call. Um, 
you know, Japan's other operators are responding now. This is the thing. They're, they're, they're starting to, I think, offer more competitive rates. I think there's been some government insistence, actually, that tariffs come down because they're perceived to be quite expensive in Japan, um, which doesn't really help Rakuten when you've got authorities saying to the other operators, you need to lower prices. You know, if that's one of their big advantages and everybody's moving right. in that direction. And they're also making use of similar technologies. So Open RAN, I think we've now got NTT Docomo, haven't we? And, I'm not sure about the other operators, but certainly Docomo's made made some steps, taken some steps in this direction. Right, and I, and I said yeah, to well, that's, him, how, I said to, that's how a free market should work. That's how from the, but the, the question to is competitive pressure. If if other companies adopt some of the technologies that Rakuten says have given it such a big advantage, then does it erode Rakuten's advantage? That's the that's the issue. Yeah, you know, how how so. does it maintain it? And he 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 played this down on the call. He said, "Well, look there." They're legacy players. I mean, he very much played up the we're a greenfield operator. You know, yes. we can, we we've got you know people that you know uh, are trained and skilled to work with software and to work with automation tools in a way that the big carriers don't. And maybe that's fair enough, but it's still you know it's it's a, it's a real challenge for them, I think. And it's going to be a while before we can really sort of yeah. assess how well they've done. And 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 which credit explains to why them. they might. Be- which explains why they might be feeling a bit defensive at the moment, and yeah. some of that cost. Possibly, yeah. No, I'm sure it wasn't entirely down to your coverage, but I mean, you will, you know, light reading. Uh, dare I say, it, certainly on the more technical stuff, um, more than telecoms.com will be one of the sites where they're like, okay, if light reading's writing about this, then it, then it, it, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so fair enough. Okay, look, let's move it on. Um, so this week. We had uh, we had some crazy stuff going on. I'll just take it from the top. And Pierre, I know you're very interested in this, so do feel free to butt in every time if you fancy it. Um, we basically had the situation of a, a company called GameStop, which is a computer games retailer um, in the US. As you can imagine, a computer games retailer, you, you expect to be a, in, in a state of slow decline as, as a lot of other retailers, as opposed to e-tail amazon type stuff um and uh a few hedge funds um decided to take a short position on them and a short selling in a nutshell is when you borrow the shares in a given company from a broker and immediately sell them so let's say you borrow them at a tenner and you immediately sell them at a tenner and what you're hoping is that when you give them back to the broker let's say in a week they've gone down to eight quid and you keep the 20% difference when you give them back to the broker. So you have to buy them back again, but you buy them back at eight quid, and they go, there you go, broker, thanks a lot for that. And then you trouser the difference. Um, the the really fun thing about short selling is the risk is limitless. So if you're doing normal share buying, you buy a share for a tenner, company goes bankrupt, you lose a tenner. But if you're short selling the company and the price keeps going up, there's no limit to the amount you have to pay to buy that share back when you have to give it back to the broker you borrowed it from. So you could buy it for a tenner, it goes to 100 quid, you've lost 90 quid. You've lost nine times your original stake. Um, so uh, that's so that what, that's what happened with GameStop. Some people on Reddit saw that the, these um, hedge funds were shorting GameStop and they went, fuck it, let's buy loads of GameStop and drive the price up and punish these um, these Wall Street companies for shorting, um, which they did so successfully. And, and one, the, the best known of the companies that had a short position called Melvin Capital, 
I think had to exit with about a $3.75 billion loss just on this one bet. Now, um, I this is by far our most read story of the week. And as you will have noticed, there is not a telecoms angle so far. Nokia gave me a telecoms angle by issuing a statement saying, because Nokia is one of the shares that 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 was that was rumored to be also shorted and, and thus also possibly subject to these weird um, market manipulation and speculative craziness. And they issued a statement going, look, we don't, we don't know what's going on. We haven't said anything. Uh, it's all just gone a bit mental. Um, and so that gave me the pretext to write about it. And my story got t- tons of reads. So that's all good. But um, so, but there are two, well, at least a couple of interesting narratives. I think this yields the not so much the narrative about the mechanics of of money of uh, equity markets. Although that's interesting, a lot of people have suddenly become expert on short selling, having known fuck all about it a week ago. Um, whereas I've always found this interesting, a la the big short and, and the financial crisis of two thousand and eight and all that sort of thing. Um, it's more this. It's more a cultural thing because, you know, I copied and pasted a a comment from one of the participants in this Reddit group, which is called Wall Street Bets. It's, they're called it's called a subreddit. That's what they call their groups on Reddit. Um, who basically saying that this is a big fu. Why am I suddenly not saying fuck? I don't know. I suddenly felt the need to censor myself there. Um, a big fuck you to to Wall Street for the financial crisis of 2008. In other words, this is our way of getting back at these at, at these hedge funds and these market alleged market manipulators and all that sort of thing. So that was really interesting. And then the other part of it we touched on when we were talking about Rakuten earlier is is the market messaging because there's there's one more little sub story from this which is there's an app called Robin Hood which is like a retail equity investment app. So I I currently do some retail equity investing um, using a app called Free Trade, and Robinhood I think is quite equivalent to Free Trade. So I just buy like a tenner here, a tenner there. I have literally a tenner's worth of Nokia stock, full disclosure, and I think I've got twenty quid's worth of Ericsson stock. Obviously, I'm not buying that amount of stock because I think it's going to make make me life changing amounts of money. With them, I partly bought it just to keep an eye on them, just because I'm curious. And I've done it with one or two operators like Vodafone and BT as well. Um, my, Did you buy it through? Free trade. Free trade. Yeah, so it's a simple app. You can just get on there um, and it just lets you commission-free just buy, buy stocks. Uh, my biggest position, incidentally, is uh, I have Aston Martin, Apache, which is an oil company, and Greg's, which makes sausage rolls. So in case anyone's wondering whether my very, very... Delicious ent- sausage rolls. Yes, yeah, delicious sausage rolls. <laughs> in case anyone's wondering whether my very entry-level stock speculation might have might create any conflicts of interest for me in my telecoms reporting, I really don't... I have minimal positions in anything telecomsy. Um, but anyway, so Robin Hood, uh, basically, this is like a... I think just yesterday. Is that right, Pierre? The what? When Robin Hood... Um, basically uh, yes. pulled the plug on it. So yesterday, Robin Hood pulled, yeah. pulled the plug on any trading in GameStop and one or two of the other... And other ones as well. Yeah, and one or two other ones, including Nokia and AMC, which is another one that was getting heavily shorted. And everyone completely freaked out because they figured, okay, so what's happening here is that when hedge funds 
start manipulating markets. No one's got anything to say and they just let them do it. But as soon as some amateurs get involved and start um, collaborating via Reddit and social media to drive up price, then suddenly all the powers that be pull the plug. Now, I think there's an interesting thing here because I was reading about this this morning and I'm really tempted by that narrative. I'm very much, you know, let's do what we can to fight back against the man and the establishment and, and stick up for the little guy and all that sort of thing. Um, so I was very receptive to this narrative, but reading around it, I think it's possible that Robin Hood may have been forced to make that move just because of the way money markets work. Uh, basically, when you get really abnormal movements, most money markets are, are just operating on a shoestring, um, as was evidenced in the financial crisis. And as soon as things get weird, they don't have any capital reserves to bail themselves out. So they have to call upon governments and all that sort of thing. That's why we've had these regulations since 2008, which make the big banks hold on to massive reserves of cash so that if there's a sudden liquidity crisis, they, they don't need bailing out by the state. And so I think that might have been one factor in what, why Robin Hood had, had to suddenly stop its customers from trading in this share. And, but then on the flip side, it only no, stopped them. Sorry. Yeah, go on, Pierre. No, I mean, I think the, the most probable reason is because uh, the orders from Robin Hood are fulfilled by a company called Citadel. Well, yes. Massive, massive company. And Citadel bailed out Melvin, Melvin Capital. Capital. So there's a real and weird interdependence there. And Citadel themselves probably were short on yes. GameStop, so they probably forced Robin Hood to do this. Yes, and that's quite possible. And that narrative is just as plausible. All I'm saying is in the sake in the in the name of balance, I can see why there would be some reasons beyond just helping their mates out why Robin Hood might have had to do what it did. But then that begs the question, all Robin Hood did was it stopped its its users from buying GameStop and others. Yeah. It didn't stop them from selling mm -hmm. it. And the natural consequence of setting up a restriction just on buying but not selling will be to drive the price of that stock down, thus, whether on purpose or incidentally, also mm -hmm. assisting all these hedge funds who have got these precarious short positions. So um, It does look like gone. the hedge funds, it, it looks like the hedge funds were taking a breather there. You know, they were like, we need, we're gasping for air. We need to take a, a whole breath. And this was their window, which was yesterday. Now it's kind of weird that they're allowing it back, which means maybe today they, they're, they're finally positioned accordingly, let's say. And they go, okay, now you can do whatever you want. Where we've hedged our bets, basically. It seems... Yes, well, uh, as they do. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, you look at those apps like Robinhood and Webull and... In the UK, you know, trade, trading free, 212, I think. Yeah, free, free trade, trade and all that. They, I'm sure these guys, all these apps are like small, small players in this enormous industry. And they're kind of like tolerated, I'm guessing. So they kind of do whatever they're told, I'm I'm assuming. Well, maybe, but... I'm not a fan. Sorry, I'm go I'm not on. an expert, but it is just, I don't know. From all these things, it seems... This is the picture I'm getting that they're sort of the little players. I think they are, but tolerated. that's but that's kind of the the point of this whole story is it's the little players, isn't it? Um, mm. And little players using apps like that, so they've gone from little players, and maybe you're right. They just thought, oh bless them, let retail investors chuck a few hundred quid here and there. Um, but it turns out via this Reddit, this subreddit, that these little pissy retail investors can move markets 
just as profoundly as the big boys when they put their mind to it. I know. And you know what? I, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. And I, as people are saying, you know, if you if you criticize the Reddit forum, that means you're with Wall Street, which I don't think it's... Typical it's binary stuff. Both, yeah, I think both things are true. I mean, let's call it what this is. It's a game. Uh, is, this is another of my analogies. Analogies, you know, I love those. Mm. Or metaphors. It's a it's a game of musical chairs. And, you know, let's say there were six guys at the beginning playing and there was there were five chairs and they were playing musical chairs. You know, this was the forum, uh, the size of the forum at the, at the beginning and it was fair. But they started playing musical chairs in the big field outside and people started walking by and being, oh, what, what, are, you, what are you guys doing? Yeah. Oh, we're playing musical chairs. And... Oh, Those like people had no idea. They had no idea what musical chairs were. They were told, "This is how you play. You basically walk around the chair. That's all you need to do. That's the entire game." And they're like, "Great, let's let's do this." This is all these posts on Reddit. You see, hold the line, hold the line. This they're telling people just walk around the chairs, and then this now there's a thousand people for for those five chairs. Yeah, and the six original guys are still walking really near the chairs waiting for the music to stop and then yeah. the other people are miles away and you know of course it's about making money i mean i'm sure a few of them are like no let's actually stick it to the men fine but what are you doing are you really putting 10 grand in and ready to lose it all just to stick it to the men no you're also looking at the yeah. thing going up and you're going to cash in you are going to and cash it's quite in. possible that and that a lot of people of the, will get hurt but plenty of the members of this reddit forum were actually city boys in disguise anyway uh, not not even that. I'm, I'm sure there were maybe even amateurs, but guess what? You know, if you got in, you know, last year, it's not fair for you to come in and show all your gains because it's not fair. People who are getting in now, there's a huge, yeah. you know, Well, you'd be mad to buy GameStop now, wouldn't you? Uh, oh, I wouldn't touch it with, no. you know, <laughs> let's keep it so, um So, Ian, does, does that... Does that sort of assessment of it make any sense to you? Do, do you? I mean, I don't know if you already understood what short selling was and all that. I, sort of I knew what short selling was, yeah. Um, I mean, whenever it comes up, I, I usually have to go and read it. It's one of those things you sort of forget how it exactly works because it's the borrowing process that always confuses me slightly. The fact that you actually borrow the share from somebody else and pay it's them. Like renting. Yeah, it's like renting a share. So you try and explain it to someone and you pay, miss you that pay a part. Fee They're like, well, month. hang on a minute. If they've got the share and they've bought it, how do they make money when the price falls? So, but it's, so it's, 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 it's a weird one. I think it's, uh, I don't know, some of these constructs that they have in, in, in trading are quite yeah, odd, I think. And, yeah. And, and the whole, the whole notion of short selling itself, I think it's been quite controversial, hasn't it? Over the years, because it was, you know, it was sort of heavily uh, implicated in the whole 2008 yeah. crash. There were people coming out at the time saying, I think that short selling shouldn't really be allowed. And they're all just, uh, they're the worst type of, of Wall Street uh, people, yeah. aren't they, for short sellers? Well, they're, they're basically because a just lot of there the, to make money and they're not there to A lot of the objection or, is the vested interest. When, you, when you're betting on something declining, you have an interest in trying to make sure that outcome happens. Yeah. So then, the thing, in the 2008 crisis, there, there was a proof that those mortgages were crap. You know, there was it was going to collapse at some point. It just accelerated the whole process. Mm. I think. Yeah, and it's timing. You know, isn't it's it? not like, yeah, I think you know there were tons of mortgages given to people who would never repay them. That's like a fact. You know. Yes, I think. Well, and the greater than 100 percent mortgages, for for example. Yeah. 
So well, yes. I, I like the story. About is, the, by the way, sorry, Pierre, go on. No, I was just going to say this whole thing has been great at educating so many people on this. You know, I'm sure like the Google searches on like stock options and shorting, oh, they must be through the roof. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say, really. I think it's, it's you know, bringing this sort of stuff to wider attention and, and you know, trading and, and buying stocks and shares is, is something I, I, I think a lot of people still don't really do. You know, they put money in, you know, you can't really find high interest savings accounts these days, but they try and no. find other ways of being reasonably safe with money. And they're not prepared to sort of dabble in, in some of this stuff. And, and maybe if it brings it to wider attention, that's good. I, I mean, the story about little men losing out and, and you know, it pitting them against the, the, the city and all of a sudden these Wall Street guys are taking umbrage, I really like that. I just wonder whether these, you know, these sort of day traders and these amateurs are really as, you know, are they, are they the kind of, you know, working class? They're not, they're not working class heroes, are they? I mean, some of them are aspiring traders themselves, I think, or... You know, I'd, I'd like it. I'd like it to be a story of the little man against the the, the, the big institution. And I, I, I wonder, this, if, I wonder the if it is quite narrative. as much as it is. You know, that's the that's the well, issue. Well, there suppose, will be you know. there'll be nuances in there. One thing I wanted yeah. to touch on with with Robin Hood. Um, so Robin Hood got an absolute kicking on social media. Um, you know, this has been one of the rare <laughs> occasions where the narrative seemed to be so simple that it's completely. Americans will call it bipartisan. So you've had people at the far left of the Democrat Party, people at the far right of the, of the Republican Party, getting together and all agreeing yeah. that hedge funds hedge funds are wankers. Maybe, so, maybe this will bring some kind of unity that wasn't there before. Maybe that's what this well, will do. Well, briefly, as we saw with the start. <laughs> it really is doing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it's, I really feel like this is... <laughs> I mean, the post of AOC and Donald Trump Jr., that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really incredible. Proper Romeo and Juliet stuff there. Um but uh, but I think you know back to the messaging thing. I think Robin Hood kind of dropped the ball because Robin Hood went right. We're we're banning our users from selling this stuff, and and so they easily laid the ground for the narrative that they're in collusion with um, with Melvin Capital and, and that other one Pierre mentioned, whose name escapes me, begins with C, and the rest and the rest of Wall Street. But I do think there probably were some mechanical reasons behind how money markets and equity markets work and liquidity and all that sort of thing that meant they did have to do something. So I think they kind of botched the messaging. And I think, you know, he subsequently, the, the Robin Hood guy, who doesn't help himself by having a Russian name as well, um, uh, sort of came out and explained in greater detail, no, no, no it's because of this, it's because of this. But but the the story, the narrative had already been formed by that stage. The the Robin because Robin Hood, as the name implies, they position themselves as being for the little guy. Yeah, that's the whole fucking point of their branding, as far as I understand it. And so, when Robin Hood of all things then suddenly decides to get cozy with the sheriff of Nottingham, it makes for such a <laughs> such a clear narrative that everyone jumped on it. And I just think they dropped you the ball. You could it. You what? Yeah. This is going to be made. You couldn't write this. This is going to be made into a movie in. A few yeah, years. yeah, exactly. Well, I hope, I hope Michael Lewis gets on it. He did such a good job with the financial crisis. Uh, and people yeah. like Matt Taibbi will presumably do a great job as well. Adam McKay will direct the movie. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, so that's that. Really, there's the only other thing I want to talk about because I think we've done an hour already. Is the the little guy versus the man narrative also? You know, one person got in touch with me on LinkedIn to say they enjoyed my article and they said it reminded them of the AWS 
thing versus parlor. Um, in so much as it's another example of the, the people who really run things, who own the platforms, who own the technology, who own the, who have the connections, basically shifting the goalposts as soon as the little guy starts to piss them off. Uh, and I was reminded of another story I wrote earlier on this week um, where uh, um, I think Twitter, so Twitter's constantly trying to work out how it can censor people without getting called a censor. And it's going to try this community policing where it's going to let people grass each other up. And, and of course, that's that's going to be so subject to abuse. It's ridiculous. So I think the, I think the broader point I'm trying to make is that we're in the Wild West with whether it's social media, whether it's trading, and all of this has been enabled by the internet. The internet is Pandora's box. It's already open. And now we keep seeing examples of people trying to close, trying to get all the contents of Pandora's box back in. But I think it's too late. And I think we're just going to see lots more examples of, of this kind of chaos. And initially, I'll always buy into the narrative, and everyone loves the narrative. But I think we can all agree it's probably a little bit more complicated than, ironically, the Robin Hood situation that we like to view it as. Cool. All right, I'll take that pause as no one else having anything to add. So, uh, yes, enjoy your Guinness. Are you going to go down to um, going to go down to Sainsbury's or whatever and stock up now? Now, now that I've started drinking, I'm thinking might yeah. might be nice to have a couple this evening as well. I, I can't. Yeah. You see, you know, you and I, we've both been out to the pub many times. When we're in the pub, we have very similar drinking habits. But where we differ is the the, the amount of alcoholic reserves we keep in the house. Um, I, I shall be uh, making up for this in February. Don't yeah, believe yeah. me. I mean, I, I'm not. <laughs> I know, is, I just, February is not going to be an alcohol-free month. By no, no. Time. It's just if I was coming to the end of dry January, I, there would be crates of the stuff waiting for that moment. <laughs> well, there might be. There might be this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. All right, then. Well, enjoy your weekend. Look forward to seeing you on Monday morning, see what kind of a state you're in. <laughs> your pet with your family having disowned you or made you live in the shed or something. Good All happen. right, guys. Cheers for that. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And make sure you join us for the next one. Bye.